0: Welcome to Onco Farm. I'm your host, John Bazar. I am an associate professor of pharmacy practice here at the supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, the Bill Gadd, College of Pharmacy. It is January 20th, 2019. No, 2020. Oh my gosh, I did it. Good thing this wasn't a check. Um, and I am recording this from my office here in Mount Home, Tennessee, and we are returning today with our Foundations in Onco Farm series with uh, really the newest drug that we've talked about in this series this is where we go over the doxorubicins and the methotrexate and the cyclophosphamides and the drugs we use over and over again and today i want to talk about bendamustine uh, which is a newer drug but also an older drug and i'll talk about that so let's get right into it aliases also known as initially known as imet 3393 uh, but there are three uh, essentially branded versions of Bendemustine in the US market, and they go by the names Trianda, Bendeka, and Belraz, yeah, Belrabzo, Belrapso? Bendemustine's easier to say. So there are three different of these, and there are some, different, uh, some differences in infusion rates, as well as compatibility with closed system transfer devices, which I'm not gonna get into a whole lot, but when we look at the history of Mendemus, I talked about how it's an old drug, but it's also a new drug. So it's an old drug in the fact that it was first uh, discovered, made synthesized uh, back in the early 1960s. However, it was in East Germany, and this was behind the Iron Curtain. So this was during the Cold War. And the idea that these, uh, these scientists had was to try to make an alkylating agent that was less toxic than say, maclorethamine, standard old nitrogen mustard. Um, now, because of um, the Cold War, this drug was used frequently in East Germany and throughout uh, the Eastern Bloc from what I understand. And it was until the Berlin law fell, the reunification of Germany, that the drug was able to move west and then be put through kind of the systematic phase one, phase two studies and eventually was FDA approved here in the United States in 2008. Uh, so a big delay between when it was discovered And when it was approved by, you know, roughly, uh, uh, you know, 40 to 50 years. So just a good example of why isolationism uh, is bad when it comes to the diffusion of science. Now, from a mechanistic standpoint, it's a unique alkylating agent. So I want you to imagine, uh, you know, meclorethamine, which is, um, you can probably, maybe you could draw it from scratch, right? But it's a very reactive drug. It's... uh, you know, it's uh, symmetrical, um, but bendin is a little bit different. So imagine um, your left hand looking like meclorethamine. Now the left hand is kind of, it's it, that's the alkylating part of bendamustine. It looks a little bit like cyclophosphamide. And then if you connect your thumbs, your right hand now, so the left hand, if you connect your thumbs, put them up together, unless you're driving, Although if you are driving, just put them on the steering wheel, okay? So your left hand—that's the alkylating side of benda Your right hand is a purine analog, is what it looks like for the most part. And uh, this this is pretty interesting. So the right hand looks a lot like cladribine, for example. Now, there was some debate—is this drug when it first came out? I remember this when I because this was 2008. I was in residency. Is this an alkylating agent? Is a purine analog? Is it both? Uh, its mechanism. Uh, appears to be all due to being an alkylating agent. Uh, And it's an alkylating agent that has longer-lasting DNA damage, and that DNA damage occurs at different uh, locations uh, than other alkylating agents like cyclophosphamide, and therefore has different effects. Uh, And it also leads to different cellular DNA repair mechanisms that are required to overcome this, than the DNA repair mechanisms that are required to overcome, say, damage from cyclophosphamide. So what this means is bendamustine has activity in cells and cell lines that are resistant to other alkylator cells. So this makes it an attractive agent in the second line setting. Um, so again, apparently the, the purine analog part of it has no pharmacologic activity, but it is interesting that bendamustine's spectrum of activity which is mostly indolent lymphomas or indolent uh, lymphocytic malignancies like CLL, follicular lymphoma, mirrors the spectrum activity of a lot of purine analogs like say fludarabine and cladribine. Um, so my kind of silly hypothesis here is you know lymphocytes have long been thought to be heavily reliant on the de novo purine synthesis pathway. So thinking back to biochemistry, purines can be synthesized the de novo pathway from scratch or the salvage pathway, right? That's where xanthine oxidase comes into play. You break it down, you reuse it sort of a thing, okay? So lymphocytes heavily rely on the de novo pathway. This is one of the reasons that, say, mycophenolate mofetil or mycophenolic acid is really good at inhibiting lymphocyte activity but sparing other other cells. Um, So I think that, you know, Lymphocytic malignancies like CLL, follicular lymphoma, etc., are really thirsty for purines, and there is some some, some scientific basis for this because uh, purines like adenosine uh, in lymphocytes are predominantly converted into the triphosphate form, which is going to shift uh, the cellular need for the for the uh, the purine base to be then phosphorylated. So, you know, I think that bendamustine probably gets into the lymphocytes a lot faster and preferentially over other cells, which is probably what happens with, purine, with pure purine analogs, which is why things like fludarabine will cause profound lymphopenia after the neutropenia has, has recovered. Um, so anyway, that, that's kind of interesting in that bendamustine has two hands, but again, it's the alkylating hand. The left hand is what does everything. As we transition into the toxicities here, there are several warnings, precaution statements in the FDA packages for Bendemustine. The first is myelosuppression, which is the dose limiting toxicity. Uh, there's one kind of phase two study or something that found thrombocytopenia is the dose limiting toxicity, but at the doses we use, um, neutropenia and lymphopenia are more common than thrombocytopenia. Now, the nadir, so the lowest point when the counts are the lowest, is usually about three weeks after treatment. Which is a good reason for us to give this drug in four week or every twenty eight day increments. Um, there is also a, a warning for infections, which makes sense, right? Seems like a duh statement. Duh, if it causes myelosuppression, it should cause infections. However, cyclophosphamide doesn't have a warning statement about infections. Neither does doxorubicin. So why does why does bendamustine have this? Well, um, you know, there seems to be a reactivation of tuberculosis, hepatitis B virus. Now that could be confounded by the concurrent use of rituximab with bendamustine, herpes, simplex virus, and zoster viruses, CMV, uh, and also there are some case reports out there of PJP. Uh, so, you know, there, there is that warning. Of course, we take that same warning with all chemo drugs. Uh, there's also a risk of anaphylaxis and infusion reactions, infusion reactions being more common. Uh, about one in four patients will have some kind of fever uh, after the infusion. Uh, tumor lysis syndrome, uh, there's a warning for that. And of note, the use of bendamustine and allopurinol may very well increase the risk of severe rash. So we do have a risk of tumor lysis syndrome when we start some of these patients with lymphocytic malignancies with bendamustine and, say, a rituximab. So many of these patients do warrant tumor lysis syndrome prophylaxis, and there is debate if should we use allopurinol or not uh, because of that increased risk of rash. Uh, there's a, a box warning for not a box warning, but a precaution statement for uh, severe dermatologic reactions like Steven Johnson syndrome and ENS. Uh, rash happens in about 8% of patients, but in almost half of those, 3% total, it's a grade 3 or 4 rash. So, severe rash is not uncommon. 3%, you know, if you give this to a whole bunch of people, a year, you're going to see some severe rash with bentamustine. Um, a warning for hepatotoxicity, and there's some question, is this due to the drug or due to hepatitis B virus reactivation? It's actually caused some people to die from hep B reactivation while on a bendamustine regimen. And again, some of that may be rituximab. We also can see secondary malignancies with bendamustine. It is an alkaline agent, after all. Uh... It does have vesicant-like properties, so we do worry about extravasation, and that uh, could be managed in in maybe the same way you would manage meclorethamine extravasation with sodium thiosulfate, and then, of course, embryo-fetal toxicity. As far as other uh, toxicities, it's it's considered moderately emetogenic, but remember, moderately emetogenic goes from 30% emesis to 90% emesis, which is a huge range. This tends to be more on the lower end of that from emetic potential, probably closer to 30% than certainly closer to 90%. Um, And that does seem to be uh, peak dependent. So the faster the drug is given, the more likely you would see nausea. Now, when we look at our myelosuppression, here are the rates of all grade uh, myelosuppression. Neutropenia happens about 86% of patients. uh, Lymphocytopenia or lymphopenia, uh, 99%. So everybody... uh, Thrombocytopenia, eighty-six percent. so everybody, you know, ninety percent people are going to have a decrease in their neutrophils, their lymphocytes, and their platelets. But let's look at the serious grade three, grade three or four decreases: neutropenia in sixty percent, uh, grade three or four thrombocytopenia in twenty-five percent, and then grade three or four lymphopenia in ninety-four percent. So we do see uh, relatively more lymphopenia than neutropenia, and certainly more leukopenia consider neutrophils and lymphocytes more of a decrease in those side lines than platelets so so that uh, especially lymphopenia maybe there is a, a rationale for why we would see more infections with this drug than say other traditional alkylating agents or cytotoxic drugs now where do we use this drug bendamustine it's primarily used in indolent lymphocytic malignancy so it's FDA approved for CLL it is FDA approved for indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphomas like follicular lymphoma, the most common. Mantle cell for some mantle cells are indolent in the second-line setting. It can be used off-label. There are, are regimens of using it. In multiple myeloma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, Waldenstrom's, uh, uh, first line for indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then uh, we have the PBR regimen, polytesumab, vedotin with bendimus or rituximab for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in like the third-line setting. Although you notice we don't use bendamustine a whole lot for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma anyway, so uh, and we've talked about that on the uh, on the polatuzumab pod about uh, that as a control arm. Now, let's talk briefly about first-line use of bendamustine for indolent non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. This is based off of the BRIGHT study, and we've mentioned this on the pod in the past. But in case you're you're not listening to, to uh, some of those updates, uh, the BRIGHT study uh, five-year update of that was published uh, in 2019. And this compared 450 or so patients to either bendamustine rituximab or RCHOP or RCVP. So everyone was determined before they were randomized, are they an RCHOP patient, or an RCVP patient? And they are randomized to kind of traditional chemo, which would be RCHOP or RCVP or bendamustine rituximab. So about 220 patients in each arm. And this was first line treatment for follicular, um, maybe mantle cell lymphoma, indolent lymphomas. Now, When the first results of this were published, the progression-free survival endpoint uh, favored bendamustine. And a lot of people started switching to bendamustine rituximab um, uh, for upfront treatment of these folks with follicular because there is an improvement in progression-free survival. So we have the updated results now. So here's the five-year progression-free survival rates. 56% 56% with uh, RCHOP or RCVP versus 66% with Benda, muscular or So a 10% absolute improvement uh, in progression-free survival at five years. You have to switch 10 people from RCHOP or RCVP to Benda, Muscle, or to prevent one progression event five years later. That's a pretty pretty small number needed to treat. Now, But that's for progression-free survival. What we really care about is overall survival. And if we look at the overall survival data at five years, there's no statistically significant difference. Uh, In fact, numerically, the overall survival is higher in the RCHOP or RCVP arm. So overall survival at five years for these indolent non-hypus lymphomas was 81.7% with bendamustine rituximab versus 85% with RCHOP, RCVP. So there was a benefit of bendamustine rituximab in progression-free survival, but that benefit and progression-free survival did not translate to overall survival, and it may have even harmed overall survival. And there could be a couple of reasons for this. One could be toxicity, like secondary leukemias, which were a little bit higher in the BR group versus the R-chop group. But also, bendamustine has activity in lines that are resistant to alkaline agents. So if you progress after RCHOP, there's a good chance that those indolent lymphomas still may be susceptible to bendamustine. And that may not, the reverse may not be the case. So in other words, some of these patients that got RCHOP uh, may have had the benefit of second-line bendamustine, whereas those in BR might not have benefited from second-line RCHOP or RCVP. Um, So those are the uses of bendamustine. Uh, Doses, the way we dose this is generally 70 to 120 milligrams per meter squared. So 90 is kind of the, probably the most commonly used dose, 90 milligrams per meter squared on day one, and then another 90 milligrams per meter, per meter squared on day two. And again, it's given every 28 days because the nadir is going to be around day 20 of this. Uh, and again, the rate of administration is uh, dependent upon which formulation it use. Some of these other formulations like Mendeca, you can give uh, much faster than Tranda, which was the first one approved on the market. From a metabolism standpoint, not a ton here to worry about. Uh, It does uh, undergo triphasic elimination, which means there's a distribution phase and then a terminal phase. Um, The the intermediate half-life of the drug, so after it kind of diffuses or distributes wherever it's going to go, is 40 minutes, so fairly short. Uh, And then the the half-life of the two active metabolites, weekly active metabolites, are 3 hours and 30 minutes, so not a drug with a long half-life. Now, the drug is metabolized in kind of two different ways. Uh, So bendamustine is hydrolyzed, um, to inactive metabolites. That's the majority of how the drug is eliminated. Now, CYP1A2 is involved in the metabolism of bendamustine. It converts bendamustine to two metabolites, which the packaging are calls M3 and M4. Uh, M3 constitutes about, you know, one tenth of the concentration compared to bendamustine, whereas M4 is one one hundredth. So M3 and M4 are probably not going to contribute a whole lot to the activity of bendamustine. They they do have some cytotoxic activity. Now, they are they do turn into these active metabolites via CYP1A2, which is an enzyme that can be inhibited by fluvoxamine or ciprofloxacin, uh, and that may increase toxicity by having higher concentrations of bendamustine. Conversely, smoking might induce CYP1A2 and lead to uh, a decrease in the uh, or an increase in the breakdown of bendamustine to these weaker uh, active metabolites. Now, what effect say, 1A2 inhibitors or 1A2 inducers or cigarette smoking have on concentrations of bendamustine or efficacy and safety, we don't know. Uh, so that's a study I would love to do if we had a ton of patients getting bendamustine is go back and look at, uh, you know, a try to get homo- a homogeneous group of, of patients getting the same dose of bendamustine, uh, get a large pool of patients, same dose of bendamustine, figure out who were smokers and who were not, and look at rates of, say, uh, myelosuppression and see if the smokers had less myelosuppression because uh, they metabolized musting faster. Uh, but we don't have a ton of patients that we give musting to locally uh, where I am, smaller clinic. But a great research idea for one of you out there to hopefully do. So that is Oncofarm for this week. Uh, you can uh, follow me on Twitter at PharmDietnip. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at, uh, at Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, dose is bad.